everyone. This is producer Rachel Kanya. Today we have a special episode with actor Alec Baldwin. Recently, Alec partnered with the team at Mission to host season eight of The Story, a Mission original podcast that tells the unknown backstories of some of the most fascinating people in history. You can find the full season online at mission.org slash the story or on your favorite podcast app. Chad and Ian sit down with Alec Baldwin to discuss what drew him to working on the story and why the characters he portrays on TV aren't always reflective of his own personal beliefs. Stay tuned to hear from Alec Baldwin and be sure to check out The Story. Welcome to another After Show. I'm Chad Grills. We've got Ian Faison right here and a special guest, Mr. Baldwin. Alec, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm great. Thank you. So glad to have you here. You did an amazing job recording the veteran season. Uh, when we mentioned the project was about veterans, your team came back and said, yes, that was uh, so cool. So thank you. Well, you know, it's interesting how people will ask you to do, uh, you know, military-related programming. You know, a guy who's an acquaintance of mine who I've known off and on for years, Gary Sinise, obviously, has become a legend sure. with doing this kind of stuff and puts his own money into this thing and his band, uh, the Captain Dan band, and he's over there doing all this USO type stuff. And um, he's given so much to the troops. I mean, he's like one of the greatest inspirations as far as that goes. And those opportunities for me have not always arisen. So if they come to me and say, you want to do a USO show? I'm like, what am I going to do? Do a scene from a sitcom for you? I don't play music. I'm not in a band. I'm not some gorgeous woman who's going to go over there and uh, uh, tell some jokes. It's not like Bob Hope and Anne Margaret in the old days. So what my uh, usefulness was in that world was not clearly defined. But whenever somebody would come to me and say, anything you want to do, voiceovers, any kind of programming, any kind of announcing, things like that, which is pretty much what I could give them, I was happy to do it because it doesn't matter. I mean, I know you've heard this ad infinitum. It doesn't matter what your politics are. There's nobody I know, there's nobody I know who doesn't really have this like, you know, just exhausting debt of gratitude to people who go into the military. Because I mean, I live in a world where, as I said to you, in 75, I was going to go ROTC, but then the war was over. So the chances of me getting trained to fly... Uh, Air Force ROTC was slim to none, and I didn't go. And uh, But I, you know, my dad was a Marine. He was a drill instructor at Paris Island, expert marksman with a rifle. You know, when you tell me that you're in Afghanistan and you're in uh, Iraq or wherever you go, I'm like, wow, you know, good for you. Thanks. You know, it's tough because when you don't do that and you don't have that in your life, you really can't know and you can't understand. It's tough, but we need both sides of the equation. So we need people out there like yourself and we need others who are— you know, whether it's the original Jack Ryan or acting as George Tennant in the recent like Looming Tower, that's important. Telling yeah. those stories is, is really important. And um, so, yeah, how do you go about choosing those projects? Because it feels like there's a lot of patriotism in your work. It's interesting because one of the biggest parts of the experience of doing Hunt for Red October, which was 30 years ago, it's a long time ago, we shot that in 89 and the movie came out in 1990. So this March or this April, my, it was my birthday in 1989 uh, in April. It'll mark 30 years ago we started shooting that film. And if there's one thing that never fails to imbue you with a sense of, a, of, a, of patriotism and appreciation for the American military is to spend some serious time with them in close quarters. So we go to the—we uh, uh, dive on the uh, USS Salt Lake City, 
We go off the coast of Point Loma. We spend the night at 600 feet in a nuclear attack submarine. And we went down there. We had trained before that at Groton, Connecticut, at the sub-base in, in, in New London. And we spent a couple of days there, and they showed us very rudimentary stuff. And then we go, and we helicopter out. We helo out, and they lower us on a cable, and we get in the Salt Lake, and we dive, and we spend the night down there. And you hang out with these guys for 12 hours. You go overnight, and, and, and you see all of the, the kind of uh, surface realities. You know, like I always remember the floor was made of cans, and I said, what's this? He said, this is our groceries. This is where we store the food for the trip, for the deployment. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you'll know how long the deployment is because we peel off the floor and we eat it. Because <laughs> there's all cans of food for the right. men and the sailors. So we go there, and I turn to this one guy, Tom. It's going to be on the tip of my tongue. I always forget because Tom went on to become, he was the captain of the Salt Lake City, who went on to become the admiral for the Pacific Fleet in, in, wow. in, the, in that area. And when we went to the premiere of... Pearl Harbor with Ben Affleck <laughs> yeah. and uh, Josh Hartnett. When we did that premiere at Pearl Harbor, he was there and he was now an admiral. I saw him in 89 and now it was 2000. Uh, 11 years later, he was an admiral. And uh, when we were on the ship with him, when he was the captain of the Salt Lake City, I mean, it, what I love wasn't what he said. It was the way he said it. And I said, let me ask you honestly, if you think we had to, if the United States had a real war, we went to war with the Russians or the Chinese or anybody for that matter. They had a real potent military. Do you honestly think we would win as a guarantee? He goes, guaranteed. Guaranteed. I said, why do you say that? What do you, I mean, you don't just say that out of emotion. Maybe there's that too, but what are you based on? He goes, the men, the training, and the equipment. He said, we have the best people. We have the best training. We have the best equipment. He goes, it wouldn't even be close. And I said, <laughs> I was going, wow, what a thing to say. And I went home and I was like, it's true. Oh, that's all you got right with the gun. And it was like we were on the deck of the ship shooting on the on the deck of the John F. Kennedy. And we shot on the on the aircraft carrier. And they're catapulting the guys off the the plane, these jet fighters. And before we went up there and shot and did that, we were, you know, they were all setting up the cameras. It takes forever. And we're in these quarters, and these guys come in who are the pilots. And you could tell they were the pilots because they were like a little bit more of an asshole than the other people. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. You can spot they, yeah. they were like Tom Cruise in Top the Gun. Walk. They were oh, like they beaming. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's super. I mean, and in, in the Army, you have helicopter pilots, right? So the helicopter pilots, they walk up, their hair's longer. They're like, you know, their blouse is a little bit unbuttoned, you know, whatever. Oh, it's, yeah. They're stars. Yeah. But what's funny, you know, I you, you talk about the men and women that served as one of the reasons, and we, Chad and I both served with, like, amazing men and women. Um, but I think what's so interesting and why we wanted to tell these particular stories is, like, there's such a depth to the American soldier or the, the fighting person that I think that it's kind of lost. When you have stories like, you know, Bob Ross was a vet, there's such a creativity, both from a business perspective or from a media perspective or just this kind of under the under the surface thing that people don't necessarily know about. And people kind of just forget. They're just regular like dudes and dudettes that are out there that have passions and purpose and all that, but also have the ability to, you know, land a fighter on, uh, you know, however, uh, something smaller than a football field. Well, you, you know that there are, I mean, this isn't true of every business success, but it's true of an interesting number of business successes. For example, this podcast that I do, I have a radio show called Here's the Thing, and it's on the uh, the local New York uh, um, public radio station, WNYC. If you go to their website, WNYC.org, you can download my show. Now, one of the shows we did was with Howard Schultz, who founded Starbucks. Yep. And when you tell Howard's story, when Howard told his story, he gets to that point, which has got to be... 
you know, the part of the story as when his, you know, he's been through all these permutations in the Seattle area about buying coffee roasters and wanting to do bulk retail coffee. And maybe they're going to have a cafe and baristas or whatever. He There's some back and forth with that and those details. And then he gets to the point where uh, the, the big moment is his father-in-law. He's married to his wife. And the father-in-law looks at him and says, you know, my my daughter, it's my daughter. You're married to my daughter. She's my little girl. And uh, she's she's pregnant. She's having a baby. And you got to stop this coffee thing and go get a real job. It's over. It's over. I mean, you've been dicking around with this now for all this, like for a couple of years now. And it's not going anywhere. And you're in debt. And you have no money. And you got a wife and a kid to support. Go get a job. Let's let's stop the crap. Dark night of the soul, and, right, right there. Right, right. And, and he goes home, and his wife was like, "No, don't give up." You know, and she tells him, "Don't give up." And now, of course, he's you know richer than you and me times fifty billion. So the um, uh, I love in these stories. I mean, first of all, when you guys came to me, I don't do just anything for hire. You know, I mean, sometimes it seems that way in some of the work I've done. <laughs> but uh, the uh, um, you send me stuff, and I really look at the copy, and I go, like, what's the tone? Is the writing good? I thought these were very well written. Very thank, who wrote thank them? Thank you. Uh, a little you, bit you, of everybody yeah, on the yeah, team. They, they, you guys did a great job. They're uh, very thanks. well written. And I like, um, you know, there's a sentimentality to them, but not too much. There's a nice layer of facts. and, and But again, this idea that, that uh, you know, the inspirational in terms of, I mean, who doesn't have tough times? Whose life doesn't get hard? You know, I mean, I've got friends of mine, family. I mean, I got a friend of mine very close to me right now. His young son is very sick oh. and how to hold on and be there for his son who's 17 years old and fight the fight for the kid who's probably going to be okay. Sure. But very tough medical battle. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I love these stories and I love doing this project with you because it is that lesson we always have to keep in our pocket, which is, you know, if you give up, you know what's going to happen. If you don't give up, you don't know what's going to happen. And it might be something really wonderful. Completely. There's always somebody out there that's gone through something worse or something similar. And that's, uh, yeah, we really want to give people some inspiration to keep going. Because with everything going on in the media right now, there's a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt. And we just want to bring a voice that's, uh, like you said, inspiring. Well, you know, the United States has always been a player in world war and a player in conflict in which the, the enemy fought under a flag. The age of terrorism is, among other things, this unknowable thing. It's, a, it's, right. it's not a country. It's a, it's, it's a cancer. It's a, it's, it's a group of people with an ideology. They don't fight under a flag. There's no nationality. There's no uh, capital. There's no people to negotiate. It's all just they want us to, they want us to end. And th that's really the goal. And uh, they don't want them to thrive. They want to thrive and they want us, they, they insist that we end. And uh, that's never going to happen. And uh, But at the same time, it's created this disturbing dimension to how we live. You know, people really, really are filled with a – there's a baseline of anxiety mm -hmm. that people in this country feel, which uh, I think is just terrible. And, 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 and again, regardless of what my politics are, in which I believe within reason, within reason, that the best thing we can do for the military in this country is bring them home whenever possible. Agreed. I, I'm all for that. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm all for making sure that they all have all the uh, – that they get paid enough money. You know, like I was talking to a guy one time who said to me, well, they don't want to give the military pay raises across the board because that's only going to mean more diapers and charcoal briquettes and beer for people in the backyard when we'd rather take that money and spend it on a weapon system that's going to stimulate the Dow. Handing pay raises to the military isn't going to stimulate the Dow. We need all military spending to manipulate the Dow. And I sat there and I went, huh, interesting. And I, but, but I thought to myself, I would like the American military to uh, prevail and win, and, uh, uh, and, but I'd like them to come home whenever possible. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see, 
you know, what we're dealing with now. I'd like to see other countries. I can't believe I sound like Trump when I say this. I'd like to see other countries join us sure. in the battle to really try to take the pressure off us because it's a tremendous burden that the United States carries, a very expensive one. So how do you think about fostering that unity that we need right now? Are you, are you thinking about it? What are you when you choose projects when, yeah, whether it's at El Dorado or any other place? How do we get more well, you unity? Know, I've, been, I, I've spent a lot of time since the 2016 election and a couple of weeks prior doing the Trump thing on SNL. And that's been something that uh, in the first year we did it, it was a phenomenon. They had 22 million hits on YouTube in the ensuing week. In the television business, they talk about what's called the plus seven audience because you have the audience at, on the day of and then what happens in the ensuing seven days in terms of on the online presence. And the plus seven for SNL was just enormous. It was a phenomenon. And Kate McKinnon and I and uh, Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, who did all the writing back then or most of it, uh, we enjoyed a great thing. We won the Emmy. We had a, you know, it was a really, uh, you know, part of the culture at that time because people really didn't believe that this guy pulled it off and, and won the election. Uh, in the following year, it gets to be a little uh, uh, less uh, fun because uh, realities are sinking in about how we're going to live. And then finally this year, it's been almost no fun because I think mocking people and dismissing people and – I mean, yes, we are trying to give people a little release and some laughs, which I think, you know – most of the shows we get there. Diffusing the tension a little bit. That's yeah. Well, I bill myself as the world's greatest mediocre Trump impersonator. <laughs> and I'm the greatest mediocre Trump impersonator. And I, I'm not doing the most, like, uh, you know, deft impersonation. But we want to give people some laughs. But I think we got to get everybody in this country to realize we're in this together. Yep. Agreed. We're in this together. I mean, in, in an America that becomes a balkanized America, where the South thinks one way and the West thinks one way and the Northeast is one way and in the Northwest is another way. And we have like four or five quadrants of this country, the Midwest, of where people are varying degrees of, of the same belief about what America is to be. America is an alloy. America is the fusion of capitalism and democracy. And you want to make sure there's a balance. Now, the United States in the last 50 years has, if you, if you, if you had to pick, they probably favored capitalism over democracy more. Because <laughs> what we have is this great economic engine. It's like a machine that we don't want it to break. We don't want it to die. What we have is a good thing, and we want it to continue. And I have no apologies about that. I mean, even though I think America uh, is sometimes undone by excess greed in certain corners, at the same time, Americans are profoundly generous people. We've been a very generous country. At the same time, I think that we need to uh, uh, we need to get everybody in this country to see their stake. We need full voter participation. I want easier enrollment. I want the election turnout to improve. Amer Americans are shameless are shamefully anemic in their voting patterns. And I just would like everybody to invest more and to care more about the country as a whole and sit there and say, you know, we got to figure out a way we can do this together. Now, do I listen to Trump and say that I'd love to see American jobs come back and they're going to make cars here again and Apple's going to make computers here again? Great. You know, I'd love to see America you know, pick itself up. But at the same time, we need people to, uh, we need to figure out a way to stop all the finger pointing. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's, I think what you said there is like these terms like, you know, like coastal elites, flyover states, baby boomers, millennials, like all of these terms all just serve at- Alienation. Yeah. yeah. Like why, like why do we use any of those things? And also like justifying an entire group of people off of like, you know, their zip code or, you know, their age is freaking crazy town. Like what, what are we doing? And I think, you know, one of the things with your, you know, media properties, you have, you know, multiple shows, you have, uh, you know, both podcasts and, and, and shows, and then obviously all your projects. I think you do a good job of 
talking to people from all over the country and not just sticking to one certain area? Like, how do you do that? And and with your shows, like, how do you look at, you know, combining people from different backgrounds, different worlds? Well, you know, I've done projects which, to be honest with you, the real important and the kind of guiding uh, condition for me work-wise is my family. I got remarried later in life. My wife is a little bit younger than I am. And we had four kids in five years, in four and a half years. I got a five-year-old, a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a seven-month-old. And so I'm going to be working until I'm 90. I'm going to be a greeter in Vegas uh, when I'm about 85 years old. I'll be in the front door saying, Beetlejuice, anyone? You saw that movie? Beetlejuice? Say it three times, and you get a free buffet pass. But I choose that. Like, I, like I don't want to go away. They'll say, oh, here's a great part, and here's a miniseries, and we're going to go to Vancouver for five months. I can't do any of that anymore. I'm home with my family. So the jobs I do, the talk show, the game show I do for ABC, where I do match game, uh, um, uh, sitcoms I'm developing, movies I appear in. It's a, quick, it's a week and I come home. Mm. It's five days and I come home. I, I try to travel out of the country as little as possible. I, everything's about my family. And, and as a result of that, I've, I've wound up doing a kind of crazy uh, uh, you know, palette of things. The SNL, of course, is another big one. And uh, there are things that appeal uh, to a wide variety. I mean, I've got people who are, you know, they identify me as a big liberal. They think I'm a big political liberal, which I think is inaccurate. I, I think of myself more as a moderate now than a liberal. But that's fine. I mean, I have some liberal uh, passions. But uh, but even the people who – I love when people write me online. They're like, Alec Bowen, I hate your politics. I mean, I think you are the biggest jerk I've ever seen in my life when you talk about politics. But I love that match game, boy. You funny as hell on that show. And, you know, whatever it is, you're going to get somebody. Find some get him here. We're going to get him here. We're going to get him there. Yeah. So. Alec, thank you so much for being generous with your time. This has been a blast. Uh, huge fans of your work. Thank you. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.